0: The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, so you have the handout there as we continue to make uh, uh, our way through this incredible book. Uh, just by way of review, I give you that review every week, um, but Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, uh, which means a, a kind of a symbolic tale, in which, uh, you know, written by John Bunyan at the end of the 17th century, Bunyan was an English Puritan toward the very, very end of the Puritan era in England. And this is a, a, a story that really depicts the Christian life as a pilgrimage. Uh, it depicts a Christian life as a journey um, that we have to make, and it makes sense, as it says in as Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So there's a pilgrimage to be made. And so it's an allegory and it's cast in the form of a dream. And it uh, begins with an individual who we find out later uh, is named Christian who is reading in a book in his hand. Turns out, of course, to be the Bible. He has a terrible heavy burden on his back. And he um, is distressed by what he reads in the book. And as he reads there, he finds out, that he didn't know it, but he's living in a place called the City of Destruction. And he doesn't know how to escape the doom, the wrath that's going to come. And so uh, a man named Evangelus comes up and points uh, him uh, a direction to run, and he begins to run toward a light that he sees in the distance. Um, As he travels, uh, he's got a companion uh, for a very short time from the town, a man named Pliable, who's not serious about the pilgrimage, but is interested in heaven anyway, and so it begins with him. And the two of them make their way uh, eventually to a a swamp, a slough called despond, meaning depression. And they fall into it and uh, Christian is sinking down. Uh, The other man, Pliable, is easily offended by what has happened, pulls himself up out quickly and gets back to the city of destruction and he never thinks about pilgrimage again. So much for Pliable. Uh, But Christian is helped out by an individual named Help and he continues on his way. Uh, He has this terrible, heavy burden on his back, it's a big issue, he tries to get it off by going to a a town called Morality, Mr. Legality points the way, but as he goes in that direction, uh, he goes uh, on the the side track that he's on, up a mountain that gets more and more steep as it goes, and this represents Mount Sinai, and we'll bump into that again tonight, Uh, the concept that the law uh, cannot save him, there's no way that his morality, his keeping of the lock and free him from guilt. And so evangelist comes and is, uh, rebukes him for getting off the path and uh, gets him back on uh, and he continues his journey. He goes to the wicked gate, uh, which you know, represents uh, the statement that Jesus himself made, enter through the narrow gate. And so he knocks on it. And uh, also in Matthew 7, it says, uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find nor- knock and the door shall be opened to you. And so uh, he knocks, and the door is opened, and the gatekeeper Goodwill takes him in. And he continues on his journey, uh, and he comes to Interpreter's House, and their interpreter shows him many um, kind of lived-out parables that teach him aspects of the Christian life, Uh, seven of them in particular, and they're very powerful, and there's a lot to learn. It's very, very helpful. Um, Then at last, Christian comes to the cross, and his burden finally falls off his back finally is rid of it, rolls down the hill, goes into the empty tomb, and he never sees it again. Uh, There are also some shining ones, seems to be representing angels, uh, give him words of assurance concerning his salvation. They give him a new robe and a scroll, telling him to look uh, in it as he goes on his way. Find out later the scroll represents his assurance of salvation. Um, As he continues on, Christian interacts with three slumbering men, uh, simple sloth and presumption, tries to rouse them into a pilgrim's life, uh, but they blow him off. They have no interest, and so that just represents, and this is going to happen throughout Pilgrim's Progress, uh, that there are interactions with people whose names show you what kind of people they are. That's the allegory, and these are the kind of people that we also will interact with. So these are people that take no concern for their souls. They're not worried about Judgment Day. They're not concerned about anything. They're just basically asleep, and there's nothing you can do to help them. Um, he also sees two other individuals, Formalist and Hypocrisy, who represent you know, a works-based religion, which was common, you know, in England and really all over the world. People who are just following a pattern, uh, probably in the Anglican Church or in the Roman Catholic Church, a pattern of religiosity. Uh, They don't come in through the gate, they come tumbling in over the wall and they think they have just as much chance to get to heaven as anyone else, but they have no real genuine walk with Christ. Uh, then Christian climbs with great difficulty up this hill called difficulty. He has to get down almost on his hands and knees. Halfway up, there's this uh, shady arbor, a place where he can rest. It's put there by the Lord of the Hill um, and for refreshment. But he overindulges, uh, spends too much time there, falls asleep, and then wakes up, realizes the day is far gone. He gets up and starts running back and continues climbing up the hill difficulty, not realizing that he's lost his scroll. And so uh, as he gets to the top of the hill, he meets a couple of people that are coming in the opposite direction um, who are afraid of some lions that are across the way. And so he reaches for his scroll to read and comfort himself, doesn't find it there. He has to go halfway back down the hill difficulty. He's chiding himself the whole time. This all just represents the fact that the Lord does give us recreation, gives us good blessings, but they're not meant to be our whole lives and that's easy to get addicted to them and get comfortable in those good things that God gives. Um, but Christian basically chides himself for uh, his sinful sleep the entire way back down the hill and back up etc the lions are there they're genuinely there but they're chained the chains can't be seen but if you stay on the path and don't digress then there's no danger this kind of represents Satan uh, who is limited in his access to us Uh, he is not permitted to tempt us beyond what we can bear uh, it's just good for us to know that, that the Lord is marshalling, uh, filtering the temptations that come our way, but that's uh, the lions. He gets through um, to, the, uh, to a house called Beautiful, and he uh, is entertained there by uh, four beautiful young women named Discretion, Charity, Prudence, and Piety, and she, he has good fellowship with them. One of the geniuses of Pilgrim's Progress is the rhythm between tremendous distress, difficulties, and also times of refreshment and renewal. And you can just see that also just in life. Uh, God is wise to not do too much of the one or the other. Uh, There's a wise mixture of trials and then times of refreshment that come in the Christian life. So that's what Christian experiences in the House Beautiful. He has uh, fellowship there. A lot of the discourses, the conversations are rich and powerful. And I'm I'm not gonna go back over them, but they're worth reading. Um, He also uh, has a good night's sleep there. And in the end, he is equipped from the armory there at House Beautiful by these uh, beautiful young women. They uh, basically get him ready for battle, and that's the next thing that's going to happen. So he goes down into the Valley of Humiliation. He slips a little bit as he goes down there, representing some sin on his part uh, as he's entering into a battle with a demon. Uh, the demon is named Apollyon. He's not Satan himself because Satan sends him. Uh, Beelzebub sends him, but he's very powerful, and the two of them have quite a spiritual battle. Uh, it's like a fight to the death, it seems almost. Uh, although neither one of them dies, and frankly, honestly, <laughs> that represents the truth. As we battle our sins, it's, it's interesting that uh, Satan cannot kill, uh, kill us, and we can't kill him. We can't kill our sins, and the sins can't kill us. We can kill individual temptations, though, and uh, we have to battle um, our temptations the rest of our lives. By saying we can't kill any sin categorically, what I'm saying is you can't ever reach a place where you know that category of sin will never trouble you again. And so it's just a battle. It's just going to be a battle the rest of our lives. You have to fight sin. There's no, nothing else for it. You just have to fight, put on your spiritual armor. And so that's what the battle of Apollo, with Apollyon represents. He eventually drives Apollyon off with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And uh, he goes off, as it says, concerning Satan with Jesus until an opportune time. So I'm sure he's going to come back, although he doesn't come back in this story. Christian then next makes his way through the valley of the shadow of death and if anything, it's much worse than the battle he just had with Apollyon. It's very dark, it's depressing, it's dangerous. There's a cliff on one side and a deep swamp on the other, and uh, it's it's dark, so he can't really see his way. He hears doleful cries, and hears demonic voices, and all kinds of fears and terrors beset his soul. Um, He somehow is able to get through at that point. The sword of the spirit doesn't do him any good, um, but he resorts to all prayer and he's just praying and calling on the Lord to help him as he goes goes through um, along the way here's someone um, ahead of him who's quoting Psalm 23 though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil and uh, so he thinks he, he's encouraged by that because there's somebody else traveling through and it seems like he's made it through or he's getting there anyway the Sun comes up and the journey gets more difficult but it's easier Uh, because he can see now it's light it's not the dark of night anymore and so he's able to make it through even though the the pathway itself is more perilous because it's no longer night it's easier to get through and as he gets through on the other side uh, then he finally catches up with um, a friend a partner who he then travels with and his name is faithful so that brings up to uh, uh, us up to the story where we're at I don't know if I'm going to do that every week probably not probably just put it on online and you can listen to the review every time Uh, But let's dig in now, and we're going to begin talking about fellowship that Christian has with Faithful in the story. Uh, Christian and Faithful are walking together, and they have some discussion. I just have taken an excerpt of part of their conversation. Can't do it all um, tonight, as it is. The outline that I have is, uh, I've got 20 pages. Mine's a little bit bigger, so I can read it without my reading glasses, but uh, there's a lot to cover. Um, But let's talk about Christian's battle with Adam and with Moses. Uh, Sorry, Faithful's battle. So Faithful's describing what it was like for him as he was going up the hill difficulty. When I came to the foot of the hill called difficulty, I met with a very aged man who asked me what I was and whither bound. I told him that I am a pilgrim going to the celestial city. Then said the old man, thou lookest like an honest fellow. Wilt thou be content to dwell with me for the wages that I shall give thee? Then I asked him his name and where he dwelt. He said his name was Adam the First and that he dwelt in the town of Deceit. I asked him what was his work and what the wages he he would give. He told me that his work was many delights and his wages that I should be his heir at last. I further asked him what house he kept and what other servants he had. So he told me that his house was maintained with all the dainties in the world and that his servants were those of his own begetting. Then I asked if he had any children. And he said that he had but three daughters, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and that I should marry them all if I would. Then I asked how long time he would have me live with him. And he told me as long as he lived himself. Christian said, well, and what conclusion came the old man and you to at last? Faithful. Why, at first I found myself somewhat inclinable to go with the man, for I thought he he spake very fair. But looking in his forehead as I talked with him, I saw there written, put off the old man with his deeds. And how then, said Christian? Faithful. Then it came burning hot into my mind, whatever he said and however he flattered, When he got me home to his house, he would then sell me for a slave. So I bid him forbear to talk, for I would not come near the door of his house. Then he reviled me and told me that he would send such a one after me that should make my way bitter to my soul. So I turned to go away from him, but just as I turned myself to go thence, I felt him take hold of my flesh and give me such a deadly twitch back that I thought he had pulled part of me after himself. This made me cry, O oh, wretched man. So I went on my way up the hill. Now, when I got about halfway up, I looked back, and I saw one coming after me, swift as the wind. So he overtook me, just about the place where the settle stands. Christian, just there, said Christian, did I sit down uh, to rest me? But being overcome with sleep, I there lost this roll out of my bosom. Faithful. But good brother, hear me out. So soon as this man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow, for down he knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked him wherefore he served me so. He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast and beat me down backward. So I lay at his foot as dead as before. So when I came to myself again, I cried him mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me. But that one came by and bid him forbear. Christian, who was him that bid him forbear? Faithful, I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I perceived the the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord. So I went up the hill. Christian, well, that man that overtook you was Moses. He spareth none, neither knoweth knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. Faithful, I know it very well. It was not the first time that he has met with me. It was he that uh, came to me when I dwelt securely at home and that told me he would burn my house over my head if I stayed there. All right, so this is a really fascinating encounter that Faithful has as he goes up the hill difficulty with Adam I, and then with this old man that Christian tells him is Moses. So what does this section teach you about the law of Moses? And what do you think Bunyan's trying to get across here about our battle for holiness? So what do we learn about Moses? Let's take the second first. He's violent, violent Moses. <laughs> <laughs> Moses up in heaven saying, I'm really a nice guy. Actually, I'm, I'm a very meek person. All right, so uh, yes. Yeah, I think one of the key moments in this exchange is that this man who's beating him up and then beats him up again and then beats him up some more, when he cries for mercy, what does he say? I don't know how to show mercy. So that, how does that kind of represent Bunyan's view of the law? The law. The law is saying, I don't know how to show mercy. Okay, so if you violate the law, what does the law do for you? It, yeah, it, it condemns you. That's what the law does. Now, it's interesting. The law here in this exchange serves a positive salvific purpose as well. Do you notice it? What did, what did uh, Moses do? For faithful that actually was beneficial for him. Do you remember? Yeah. What's the that very last thing he says to him? He said, uh, it was not the first time he met with me. It was he that came to me when I dwelt securely at home. So it's in the city of destruction. And, and he told me he would burn my house down over my head. So what did that cause faithful to do? Leave, get up and start on pilgrimage. So that's, you know, the sense of the law that which causes you to seek salvation, to realize that you're in trouble. Frankly, it was Christian's experience as well. What's he reading in the book uh, that causes him to lament and break out and sighs and all that, except for the laws of God that shows his own wickedness and his own sin. But the law has no power to save. There's no no mercy in the law. There's no salvation. So um, what happens in the exchange here? How does he get delivered from this old man that keeps beating him up, Moses. Do you remember what happened? Someone came along. Jesus, the one with the holes in his hand and his side. And what did he do to save faithful? He told them to stop it. (laughs) Okay, Stop beating him up. He bid him forbear. Yes. And so it's really amazing how Christ basically quiets the law or it says in Romans uh, 10 that Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. So the law has no longer any power to condemn. Um, And so this is a very powerful display of Christ's saving purpose. Now, what about this Adam the first? Well, this just represents, honestly, our old nature, Uh, who we are in Adam naturally. We naturally have a yearning after the three lusts that are mentioned here, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And we will forever be dealing with that while we live in this world. And then the law has, comes and beats you up for being enticed by these fleshly desires. And so that's the, the struggle that we have where we're commanded, and the text says, put off the old man with its desires. Um, so, anyway, so that's one of the exchanges that Christian and faithful have. All right? Then we get on to an individual named Talkative. All right, so Talkative. Um, if we could just summarize, because I'm not going to give you the whole of that account either, but talkative is a guy who knows how to talk a good game. Honestly, it's interesting because uh, John Bunyan himself said about himself, in grace abounding to the chief of sinners, his own testimony, before he was converted, um, there were some godly women that he was interacting with, uh, the ones who were kind of gossiping about Christ in a very beautiful way, and they didn't realize he uh, he was overhearing them. But they were just speaking about high, lofty things, about heavenly things, that he had no real comprehension. And he says of those women, they spoke as if joy did make them speak. And he said, but I wanted to engage them in a conversation. He's speaking about himself. For I was then a brisk talker about religion myself. So, you know, it's like I could talk a good game. You know, we're we're all talking about religion. There's so much going on. So here along comes this individual named Talkative. So he just loves spiritual discourse. He loves conversations, but there's no reality behind it. There's no genuine piety. So um, at one point, Christian um, talks to Faithful about this man talkative. He says, actually Faithful says to Christian, so do you know this man? And Christian answers, better than he knows himself. It's a really interesting answer. It's like, I know him very well. I know exactly what's going on. Let me tell you what to say to him, and let's have a conversation. You'll see who he really is. So at some point, they end up talking about how the genuine work of grace discovers itself or shows itself in a person's life. Now, this is the real meat of Pilgrim's Progress, the theology behind it. This is the Puritan, uh, like, wheelhouse is talking about how God's grace transforms human hearts, what actual signs or marks there are in a a person's life to show that they have been saved by grace. Talkative doesn't have any of these marks, Um, but what's interesting is the actual discussion is so helpful for us as we read. These are the kind of things that would be left out of the children's summary, that kind of thing which has all the adventures and moments but are going to leave out the discourses and the conversations, but they're well worth reading. So let's read it and look at it. Faithful, A work of grace in the soul discovereth itself either to him that hath it or to standers by. First, to him who hath it thus. All right, so let me tell you what he's saying. If there's a genuine work of grace, it's going to show itself first to you and then to the people who know you. Let's talk first about how it it shows itself to you. And so that's what we're doing. And then secondly, how does it show itself to the people who know you and who are watching your life? All right, so first, to him that hath it thus, it gives him conviction of sin, especially of the defilement of his nature and of the sin of unbelief, for the sake of which he is sure to be damned if he findeth not mercy at God's hand by faith in Jesus Christ. This sight and sense of of things worketh in him sorrow and shame for sin. He findeth moreover revealed in him the Savior of the world's. And the absolute necessity of closing with him for life, at the which he findeth hungerings and thirstings after him, to which hungerings, etc., the promise is made. In other words, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied or filled. Now, according to, now this is very important, listen to this. Now, according to the strength or weakness of his faith in his Savior, so is his joy and peace. And so also is his love for holiness. And so also are his desires to know Christ more. And so also to serve him in this world. Now look at that list of things. In other words, these things are variables. Depending on the strength or weakness of your faith in Christ, that's how your joy and peace will be in the Christian life. Depending on how strong or weak your faith is, that's how much you'll love holiness, or or you won't. Depending on the strength or weakness of your faith, that's how much you'll desire to get to know Christ better, to grow in your knowledge of Christ. Uh, Depending on the strength or weakness of your faith, that's how much you'll desire to serve Him in this world, how much fruit you'll have to show in your life. It's a variable. It depends on the strength of your faith or the weakness of it. But, though I say it discovereth itself thus unto him, yet it is but seldom that he is able to conclude that this is a work of grace, because his corruptions now and his abused reason make his mind to misjudge in this matter. Therefore, in him that hath this work, there is required a very sound judgment before he can with steadiness conclude that this is a work of grace." In other words, you can have all of these things going on in your life. But because of the strength of the flesh in you and the battle that you have with sin, it's sometimes hard to know for certain that the work of grace is going on. It's a real battle. It's a struggle. In the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, it's interesting because Christiana and the children are going and they're traveling together. And they're wearing these radiant garments, like Christian got um, from The Shining Ones. They're wearing them, but they can't see the glory of their own garments. They can only see them in other people. For themselves, they only see their flaws and failures and things like that. It's really kind of interesting. And so it's beneficial to have Christian fellowship where people can say, you know, I see God's grace at work in you. I think that, by the way, is a very good thing to say, to find brothers and sisters and say, you know, I, I see evidence of God's grace in you. Really? Yeah. Like what? What do you see? Well, these things. So be sure you're not just there to flatter. It's like a slogan. I was told that it was good to say, I see God's grace at work in you. Really? How? I have no idea. But, you know, don't do that. Pray about it, get ready, and then go encourage someone, a brother or sister in Christ. It's really helpful. All right, now, to others it is thus discovered. So other people watching you, they see this. First, by an experimental confession of his faith in Christ. So in other words, this person is is confessing, I am a Christian. They say, I believe in Jesus. And, and they're they confessing that, uh, you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised you. So you're making that confession. Secondly, by a life answerable to that confession, to wit, a life of holiness, heart holiness, family holiness, if he hath a family, and by conversation holiness in the world, which in the general teacheth him inwardly to abhor his sin and himself, for that, in secret, to suppress it in his family, and to promote holiness in the world, not by talk only as a hypocrite or talkative person may do, but by practical subjection in faith and love to the power of the word. So that's what we're looking for in each other. Basically, that person is living out a life consistent with the Christian confession. They're they're living it out. They're living a life of holiness and and purity in in their walk. So that's what we're trying to see. So, discussion question. What does this section teach you about the work of grace in the soul? I hope something, because that's what it's been about, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Evidences, um, what we would call marks of regeneration. What are we looking for in ourselves and others? All right. Anyone else? Why is it helpful even to know that such things are, are beneficial to know, to have a list? Say, we're looking for these things in ourselves. We're looking for these things in others. Why is it helpful to just have a list like that? Marks of regeneration. Okay to pursue assurance of salvation. Fantastic. It's good for counseling. People struggling with sin, they come to you, you're able to talk to them. And one thing I, I love, and they, he mentions it here, but I love using the, the beatitude, which I, I did, I zeroed in on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People can be struggling with sin, but are they yearning to be holy? Are they yearning to be free of it? Do they look look forward to heaven as a place where they'll finally be free from their sins? And along with that has to be clear evidence of battling, of fighting, of putting on spiritual armor. There has to be evidence of a fight, but just a yearning for holiness. There's, that's a mark of regeneration, some other things. Okay. Um, yeah, I think we've covered those questions. Let's keep going. By the way, talkative eventually does not like that talk, <laughs> did not enjoy the conversation, and decided to go his own way. Uh, and Christian knew that that's probably what would happen. All right, as they continue traveling, Christian and faithful, evangelist comes again and initiates with them and gives them a warning of what's about to happen. Evangelist says this, My sons, you have heard in the words of the truth of the gospel that you must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of heaven, and again, that in every city bonds and afflictions abide in you. And therefore, you cannot expect that you should go long on your pilgrimage without them in some sort or other. You have found something of the truth of these testimonies upon you already, and more will immediately follow. For now, as you see, you are almost out of this wilderness, and therefore you will soon come into a town that you will by and by see before you. And in that town you will be hardly beset with enemies who will strain hard, but they will kill you. And be sure, be you sure, that one or both of you must seal the testimony which you hold with blood. But be you faithful unto death, and the king will give you a crown of life. He that shall die there, although his death will be unnatural, and his pain perhaps great, he will yet have the better of his fellow, not only because he will be arrived at the celestial city soonest but because he will escape many miseries that the other will meet with in the rest of his journey. But when you are come into the, come to the town and shall find fulfilled what I have here related, then remember your friend and quit yourselves like men and commit the keeping of your souls to your God in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. All right, so this brings up the question, you know, Jesus warned his disciples ahead of time of the kinds of sufferings they would endure for his name. For example, John 16. Can someone read that off the handout there? John 16, 1 through 4. So this is almost exactly like what's going on with evangelists. Why is it beneficial to have this kind of warning ahead of time? Okay, to not be surprised. And why would that be a bad thing to be surprised when a trial like that comes to? Okay. Okay, he might be overwhelmed, you know. So you won't go astray. So why, Amanda, why would we be tempted to go astray if we hadn't had so many clear warnings about this? Absolutely. I mean, you look at Pliable, for example, earlier. He is all about heaven. He's excited. Sounds good. Until the first difficulty comes. And he's down in the slough of Despond, along with Christian. And Pliable says to Christian, where are you now? And Christian says, I don't know. And so Pliable's done. He's like, I didn't think it was gonna be like this. If this is the kind of difficulty we have at the beginning of our journey, what's the rest of the journey gonna be like? So the New Testament is actually filled with promises that the Christian life is going to be hard and that people in this world will be opposed to our confession of Christ. And Jesus said very clearly there in John 61 through four, I've told you this ahead of time so you won't fall away. So you'll remember this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Or as Peter says in his epistle, he says, do not act as though this thing that are happening to you is some strange thing. This is the very thing that God said would happen. So. All right, so uh, now we come to Vanity Fair. This is one of the most striking sections of the entire book. It's quite remarkable. I've quoted it from the pulpit probably four or five times over 20 years. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good description of what. What do you think? Yeah. Some of you read it before. What does Vanity Fair represent? A magazine, right? The, yeah, yeah, there you go. No. All right, well, will tell you what. Let's read it, and then, then I'll ask it again. Then I saw in my dream that when they were got out of the wilderness, they presently saw a town before them, and the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair, and it is kept all the year long. It beareth the name of Vanity Fair, because the town where it is kept is lighter than Vanity And also because all that is sold there, or that cometh thither, is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, all that cometh is vanity. All right, the fair's origin and description. This fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. I'll show you the original of it. Almost 5,000 years agone, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, as these two honest persons are and Beelzebub, Apollyon, legion, and their companions, perceiving the, by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity, they contrived here to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity, and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, as whores, bods, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. By the way, you can get whatnot at Walmart and other places. (laughs) Let's just keep going. And more, moreover, at this fair there is at all times to be seen juggling cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves and rogues and that of every kind. Here also are to be seen too and that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulterers, adulteries, false-swears and that of a blood-red colour. As in other fairs of less moment there are several rows and streets under their proper names where such and such wares are vended. So here, likewise, you have the proper places, rows, streets, these are countries and kingdoms, where the wares of these, this fair are soonest to be found. Here is the British row, the French row, the Italian row, the Spanish row, the German row, where several sorts of vanities are to be sold. But as in other fairs, some one commodity is as the chief of all the fairs, so the ware of Rome and her merchandise is greatly promoted in this fair only our english nation with some others have taken a dislike thereat all right now let me ask again what does vanity fair represent yeah i mean you said it. it's the world it represents the world such as first john 2:15 through 17 someone read that for me if you would so that i think the use of the word world would be the same in these two passages all right so this represents the world how does this section John Bunyan's timeless description is really quite remarkable how he sums this up in a couple of paragraphs. What does it, you know, how does it give you a sense of what the New Testament warns us about when it says the world? Okay. Yeah. There's all kinds of wickedness and sins. There's some things that are not intrinsically evil, like husbands, wives, children, things like that. There's nothing intrinsically evil about gold, silver, and pearls. Um, any, anything else? Any other observations on Vanity Fair? Yeah. Anything that would get you off the path and get you to take an off-ramp and go after it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can redo re the list that I've had in my mind, but I feel like all the letters uh, begin with P, such as power, pleasures, possessions, pride. Um, there may be some others. That's what the world offers, you know, position, that kind of thing. Um, and that's what is the major assault on our souls all the time, the pull of the world, the enticement of what, the, what Revelation 18 calls Babylon, the, tr- the truck and trade of Babylon. Uh, so Vanity Fair, to me, just is the same as, as Babylon. Okay. So how do, we, uh, how do we obey 1 John 2, 15 through 17? How do we guard ourselves against loving the world and its lusts? Well, You just have to understand the just incredible power that the Roman Catholic Church had back then. I mean, Christendom, so to speak, was a, was a monolithic entity in which political power and trade and religion were all wrapped up in one. There was not a, a, in any way a separation of church and state. And so Rome was a major player on the political front constantly, and giving, giving kingdoms and, and privileges for money, selling them, Etc. they were making huge money. And I would have to say that it's quite possible that the Roman Catholic Church is, you know, one of the wealthiest entities on planet Earth right now. If you, if you I mean, just take real estate. Let's just start there. What do you think is the cumulative worth of Roman Catholic real estate? I mean, they have churches in every city. And I mean, let's just take Manhattan. How many like Roman Catholic churches are there in Manhattan? Just sell that property. What's that gonna be worth right there? And that just multiplied by every city on Earth pretty much. Almost ever. obviously, Muslim countries wouldn't have it, but and just the amount of the accumulation. So they were a major player in terms of of trade, money, all of those things. So you know we don't think of them now, but they, it was clearly evident to Bunyan that Rome was kind of like the cohesive power of Europe. Okay, anyone else? On First John two fifteen through seventeen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk again and again about the triple threat to our souls. And it's always the same thing, the world of flesh and the devil. And what the world is, is this. This is just a, you know, this is a 17th century description of the attraction of the world. Um, you know, I, I put in that little thing about Walmart or I guess Amazon Prime's gonna take over Walmart at some point, I don't know. I see like six trucks a day going around. Pretty soon we'll be having uh, drones dropping merchandise right, right in front of it. I mean, it's just amazing, it's relentless. And, and it's just like it's filling some emptiness in our souls, these material possessions. And we just need to be aware of it. Um, watch out. Do not love the world. I mean, it is a bit odd that it includes husbands and wives and children in the list. But the point is to not idolize them. Not say I can't live without them. They are physical things in this world. Yeah, I don't know if they've done the market study on that. It's a little hard to get to. Um, but at any rate, all right. The inevitably, uh, in- inevitability of passing through vanity. Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept, and he that will go to the city and yet not go through this town must needs go out of the world. The prince of princes himself, when here, went through this town to his own country, and that upon a fair day too, yea, and as I think, it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, that invited him to buy of his vanities, Yea, would have had would would have made him Lord of the Fair, would he but have done him reverence as he went through the town. Yea, because he was such a person of honor, Beelzebub had him from street to street, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time, that he might, if possible, allure the Blessed One to cheapen and buy some of his vanities. But he had no mind to the merchandise, and therefore left the town, without laying out so much as one farthing upon these vanities. This fair, therefore, is an ancient thing of long standing and a very great fair. Clearly, that's talking about Jesus' temptation. In Matthew 4, it's repeat, uh, rep- repeated there written there. Um, so how does the world allure Christians away from faithfulness to Christ? What approach does the world make to our souls? How does it allure us? Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I think just, just realizing that it's pandering to normal desires and drives that God did build into our bodies. Uh, but the flesh is always pushing those beyond boundaries that, that, the, that the law sets up, that God's word sets up. So it's pandering constantly to that. And I think a large measure of what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross and follow. This is a lot of the self-denial. To walk through and say, I'm not doing this. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to keep on the straight and narrow. All right. So why were the pilgrims rejected by Vanity Fair? Now, these pilgrims, as I said, must needs go through this fair. Well, so they did. But behold, even as they entered into the fair, all the people in the fair were moved and the town itself as it were in a hubbub about them. And that for several reasons. First, the Christians were clothed with such kind of raiment as was diverse from the raiment of any that traded in that fair. The people, therefore, of the fair made a great gazing upon them. Some said they were fools. Uh, Some said they were bedlams that means insane, and some that they are outlandish men. Secondly, uh, and as they wondered at their apparel, so did they likewise at their speech for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan. But they that kept the fair were men of this world, so that from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians to each other. Thirdly, but that which did not a little amuse the merchandisers, was that these pilgrims set very light by all their wares. They cared not so much as to look upon them, And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and look upwards," signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. So some questions now. How should we American Christians be noteworthy in our differences from worldly people, the worldly people that surround us and look upon us? Second question, how do you foresee American culture and biblical Christianity becoming more and more hostile to one another, perhaps even in the near future? If it's not happening already. <laughs> do you have any sense of an increasing rift between genuine biblical Christianity and the surrounding culture in America? And if so, what do, we, what do you do about that, okay? Don't let it affect your convictions. Do you think it's gonna get harder for our children and grandchildren to live faithful Christian lives in America than it is for us? Yes, go ahead. Yeah. You could almost imagine Jesus saying, "These are just the beginning of birth pangs." You know, I I, you just have to imagine it's going to get worse. You look at the level of hostility. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's the fruit uh, in our in our country of some really faithful Christian leaders for a long time that saturated this surrounding culture here in the in the new world with Christianity, so there isn't wasn't aggressive hostility toward biblical Christianity here. But that is clearly a decaying orbit. It's not going to last. And the norm worldwide has been hostility. So let's read about it. The difficulties begin. One chanced mockingly, beholding the carriage of the men, to say unto them, What will ye buy? But they, looking gravely upon him, answered, We buy the truth. At that there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. At last, things came to a hubbub and great stir in the fair, insomuch that all order was confounded. Now was word presently brought to the great one of the fair, who quickly came down and and deputed some of his more trusty friends to take these men into examination, about whom the fair was almost overturned. So the men were brought to examination. And they that sat upon them asked them whence they came, whither they went, and what they did there in such unusual garb. The men told them that they were pilgrims and strangers in the world, and that they were going to their own country, which was the heavenly Jerusalem, and that they had given no occasion to the men of the town, nor yet to the merchandisers, thus to abuse them, and to let them in their journey, except that it was for this that one asked them what they would buy, and they said they would buy the truth. Uh, But they that were appointed to examine them did not believe them to be any other than bedlams and mad, or else such as came to put all things into confusion at the fair. Therefore they took them and beat them and besmeared them with dirt and put them into the cage that they might be made a spectacle to all the men at the fair. In this poem, Behold, Vanity Fair, the pilgrims there are chained and stand beside. Even so it was our Lord passed here, and on Mount Calvary died. So why do you think the inhabitants of Vanity Fair are so hostile? Why are they so angry? But you know, uh, a merchant that's set up a shop, and you know, people walk by and don't turn in, they don't get angry. Somebody even comes into the shop, looks at it, and walks out without buying anything, they don't get angry. But these people are enraged so I think it's because they won't buy it, but there seems to be something deeper that's causing the rage. What could it be? Yeah, it, it could be. I think these verses help us. Uh, it says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So that seems to he links the two there. The reason the world hates is that. Your, your actions, you're living a righteous life, and they're not. And so they feel guilty around you. All right? Again, John 7 7. Remember, Jesus' brothers were giving him some advice about his ministry? And Jesus said this very telling thing about them The world cannot hate you. So, what is Jesus saying to his brothers there? Yes, you're worldly. <laughs> they're not believers yet. The world cannot hate you. But. It hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. So that's, there's the hostility. And again, 2 Timothy 3, 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, then the persecution intensifies. There, therefore, they lay for some time and were made the object of any man's sport. So they're in a cage and people are coming by and mocking them. Any man's sport or malice or revenge the great one of the fair laughing still at all that befell them. But the men being patient and not rendering railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing and good words for bad and kindness for injuries done. Some men in the fair that were more observing and less prejudiced than the rest began to check and blame the baser sort for their continual abuses done by them to the men. They therefore in angry manner let fly at them again counting them as bad as the men in the cage and telling them that they seemed confederates and should be made partakers of their misfortunes. The others replied that for aught they could see the men were quiet and sober and intended nobody any harm and that there were many that traded in in their fare that were more worthy to be put into the cage, yea, in pillory too, than were the men that they had abused. Thus, after diverse words had passed on both sides, the men behaving themselves all the while very wisely and soberly before them, they fell to some blows among themselves, and did harm one to another. Then were these two poor men brought before their examiners again, and there charged as being guilty of the late hubbub that had been in the fair. So they beat them pitifully, and hanged irons upon them, and led them in chains up and down the fair, for an example and a terror to others, lest any should speak in their behalf or join themselves unto them. But Christian and faithful behaved themselves yet more wisely and received the ignominy and shame that was cast upon them with so much meekness and patience that it won to their side, though but few in comparison of the rest, several of the men in the fair. This put the other party into yet greater rage, insomuch that they concluded the death of these two men. Wherefore, they threatened that the cage nor irons should serve their turn, but that they should die for the abuse that they had done, and for deluding the men of the fair. Then were they remanded to the cage again until further order should be taken with them. So they put them in and made their feet fast in stocks. Now look at the pilgrim's attitude about their suffering. Here, therefore, they called again to mind what they had heard from their faithful friend evangelist, and were the more confirmed in their way and sufferings by what he had told them would happen to them. They also now comforted each other that whose lot it was to suffer, even he should have the best of it. Therefore, each man secretly wished that he might have that preferment, but committing himself, themselves to the all-wise disposal of him that ruleth all things, with much content they abode in the condition in which they were, until they should be otherwise disposed of. Reminds me of Acts chapter 5, where the apostles were beaten For their trust in Christ and their ministry to Christ. And they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. As Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now quickly comes the trial. First arraignment, then a convenient time being appointed. They brought them forth to their trial in order to their condemnation. When the time was come, they were brought before their enemies and arraigned. The, Lord, the judge's name was Lord Hategood. I mean, if that's your judge, you're in trouble, all right? But at any rate, Lord Hategood. Their indictment was one and the same in substance, though somewhat varying in form. The contents whereof were this, that they were enemies to and disturbers of their trade, that they had made commotions and divisions in the town, and had won a party to their own most dangerous opinions, and in contempt of the law of the prince. Now at this point, interestingly, Bunyan inserts an encouragement to faithful to stand firm and be courageous. I find this really interesting. Now faithful play the man. Speak for thy God. Fear not the wicked's malice, nor their rod. Speak boldly, man. The truth is on thy side. Die for it and to life in triumph ride. So that's just Bunyan sticking that poem in there to give faithful the encouragement he needs. I think also of this text in Matthew 10 where it says, When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say. At that time you'll be given; it will be given to you what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. If I could just say, some of the greatest lines in church history have been spoken by people just about to die for Christ. And don't think those folks were just suddenly clever, all right? God, the Holy Spirit, spoke through them and said amazing things. So you should study the words of the martyrs. It's pretty exciting. So faithful begins and makes his defense, that he had only set himself against that which had set itself against him that is higher than the highest. And said he, as for disturbance I make none, being myself a man of peace, the parties that were won to us were won by beholding our truth and innocence, and they are only turned from the worse to the better. And as to the king you talk of, since he is Beelzebub, the enemy of our Lord, I defy him and all his angels. Well, now they're going to summon witnesses. Then proclamation was made that they that had ought to say for their lord and king against the prisoner at the bar should forthwith appear and give in their evidence. So there came in three witnesses to wit envy, superstition and pick which friends, I have no idea what that means. But anyway, there it is pick thank then they uh they were then asked if they knew the prisoner at the bar and what they had to say for their lord the king against him then stood forth envy and said to this effect my lord i have known this man a long time and will attest upon my oath before this honorable bench that he is this is pretty funny right here judge hold give him his oath so they swear him then he continued So that's just Bunyan writing that. Bunyan had a great sense of humor. He's like, wait a minute, he's not been sworn in yet, so let's swear him in. Envy. My Lord, this man, notwithstanding that his plausible name, is one of the vilest men in our country. He neither regardeth prince nor people, law nor customs, but doth all that he can to possess all men with certain of his disloyal notions, which he in the general calls principles of faith and holiness. And in particular, I heard him once myself affirm that Christianity and the customs of our town of vanity were diametrically opposite and could not be reconciled. By which saying, my Lord, he doth at once not only condemn all our laudable doings, but us in the doing of them. Judge, hast thou any more to say? Envy. My Lord, I could say much more, only I would not be tedious to the court, Yet if need be, when the other gentlemen have given in their evidence, rather than anything shall be wanting that will dispatch him, I will enlarge my testimony against him. So he was bid to stand by. Then they called superstition and bid him look upon the prisoner. They also asked what he could say for their lord, the king, against him. Then they swear him. So he began superstition. My lord, I have no great acquaintance with this man, nor do I desire to have any further knowledge of him. However, this I know that he is a very pestilent fellow. From some discourse that the other day I had with him in this town, for then, talking with him, I heard him say that our religion was not, and such by which a man could by no means please God, which sayings of his, my lord, your lordship very well knows, what necessarily thence will follow to wit, that we do still worship in vain and yet are in our sins, and finally shall be damned. And this is that which I have to say. Then was Pickthank sworn and bid to say what he knew in behalf of their lord, the king, against the prisoner at the bar. Pickthank. My lord and you gentlemen all, this fellow I have known of a long time and have heard him speak things that ought not to be spoke. For he hath railed on our noble prince, Beelzebub, and hath spoken contemptibly of his honorable friends, whose names are the Lord Old Man, the Lord Carnal Delight, the Lord luxurious, the Lord desire of vainglory, and my old Lord lechery, sir having greedy, and with all the rest of our nobility. And he hath said, moreover, that if all men were of his mind, if possible, there is not one of these noble men should have any longer a being in this town. Besides, he hath not been afraid to rail on you, my Lord, who are now appointed to be his judge, calling you an ungodly villain, with many other such vilifying terms which, with which he hath bespattered most of the gentry of our town. When this pick had told his tale, the judge directed his speech to the prisoner at the bar, saying, Thou runagate, heretic, and traitor, hast thou heard what these honest gentlemen have witnessed against thee? Faithful, may I speak a few words in my defense? Judge, sirrah, sirrah, thou deservest to live no longer, but be slain immediately upon this place. Yet that all men may see our gentleness towards thee, let us hear what thou vile runagate hast to say. First, I say then in answer to what Mr. Envy has spoken, I never said aught but this, that what rule or laws or customs or people were flat against the word of God are diametrically opposed to Christianity. If I had said amiss in this, convince me of my error. I'm ready here before you to make my recantation. Secondly, As to second to wit, Mr. Superstition, and his charge against me, I said only this, that the worship of God there is required a divine faith. But there can be no divine faith without a divine revelation of the will of God. Therefore, whatever is thrust into the worship of God that is not agreeable to divine revelation cannot be done but by a human faith, which faith will not be profitable to eternal life. Thirdly, as to what Mr. Pickthank has said, I say, avoiding terms such as that I am said to rail and the like, that the prince of this town, with all the rabblement, his attendance by this gentleman named, are, are more fit for a being in hell than in this town and country. And so the Lord have mercy upon me. Then the judge called to the jury, who all this while stood by to hear and observe, gentlemen of the jury, you see this man about whom so great an uproar hath been made in this town. You have also heard what these worthy gentlemen have witnessed against him. And you have heard his reply and confession. It lieth now in your breasts to hang him or save his life. But yet I think to meet to instruct you unto our law. And then he talks about persecutions from the Bible. So let's just skip that. He talks about Pharaoh, uh, Lion, Daniel and Lion's den, et cetera. Now comes the jury and the verdict. Then went the jury out whose names were, here's your jury, Ready? Mr. Blind Man, Mr. No Good, Mr. Malice, Mr. Love Lust, Mr. Live Loose, Mr. Heady, Mr. High Mind, Mr. Enmity, Mr. Liar, Mr. Cruelty, Mr. Hate Light, and Mr. Implacable, who every one gave in his private verdict against him among themselves and afterwards unanimously concluded to bring him in guilty before the judge. And first among themselves, Mr. Blind Man, the foreman said, I can see clearly that this man is a heretic. Come on, that's funny, all right? Thank you very much. Then, said Mr. No Good, away with such a fellow from the earth. I, said Mr. Malice, for I hate the very looks of him. Then, said Mr. Lovelust, I could never endure him. Nor I, said Mr. Live Loose, for he would always be condemning my way. Hang him, hang him, said Mr. Hetty. A sorry scrub, said Mr. High Mind. My heart riseth against him, said Mr. Enmity. He is a rogue, said Mr. Liar. Hanging is too good for him, said Mr. Cruelty. Let us dispatch him out of the way, said Mr. Hatelight. Then, said Mr. Implacable, might I have all the world given me. I could not be reconciled to him. Therefore, let us forthwith bring him in guilty of death. And so they did. Therefore, he was presently condemned to be had from the place where he was to the place from whence he came. And there to be put to the most cruel death that could be imagined or invented. They therefore brought him out to do with him according to their law. And first they scourged him. Then they buffeted him. Then they lanced his flesh with knives. And after that, they stoned him with stones. Then pricked him with their swords. And last of all, they burned him to ashes at the stake. Thus came faithful to his end. Now I saw that there stood behind the multitude a chariot and a couple of horses waiting for faithful who so soon as his adversaries had dispatched him was taken up into it and straightway was carried up through the clouds with the sound of trumpet the nearest way to the celestial gate. Brave faithful, bravely done in word and deed, judge, witnesses, and jury have instead of overcoming thee but shown their rage when they are dead Thou shalt live from age to age. So let's stop there.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.